0: Welcome to Tone Benders, the Sound
1: Lives Podcast. Yo, yo, Dustin Turkey and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders, my name is Renee Coronado, and my mic is way too loud. Hold <laughs> on. <laughs>
2: that's I definitely that's the one we go with. That's the keeper. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. That's my life that is literally my life story right there. Hold on, can we do I know we just dropped a car, but can we pick it up and do it again?
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hold
2: on.
1: Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado and with me today as always is Timothy Muirhead. Hey Tim. Hey, how you doing? And also with us today is Carl Anderson. Carl is a field recordist, sound designer, and mixer working out of New York. His credits include the Resident Evil series, the Darren Aronofsky film Noah, the documentaries Fog of War, Catfish, and Pandora's Promise, and of course, Martha Marcy May Marlene, which we'll be discussing at length today. Hey, Carl, how are you doing? I'm very good. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Uh, tell me your Twitter handle again.
2: Oh, I don't have one. He doesn't have one. <laughs> no, no, no. And, you know, I, my, all Ludditeness aside, no Twitter and and a very, and a very modest website to boot. Which is? Uh, C, da, CASoundInc.com. You, you, you know go. you're in the right place if you see a, a car accident with no sound on it. <laughs> <laughs> I know mean, that's bad, isn't it? That sounds bad.
1: <laughs> that's perfect. Uh, You can find the rest of us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Asmuth Audio. Dustin is
0: at Pulse Train. Sound is an important part of any film, and it's most obvious when you use the Hollywood tentpole films like Iron Man. There's huge explosions, and the sound matches what's on screen. But sometimes the best sound design work is when it's a little less notable, and the sound is being used to uh, set the mood and the tone of the film. It's something that's normally left up to composers, but every once in a while you find a film with sound design that sets the mood so perfectly and really carries the film and puts you on the edge of your seat and gives you cues as to what emotions to feel or better yet, even leaves you not knowing what emotion to feel at all. And we're lucky enough to have sound designer Cole Anderson, who I think achieved this amazingly with the film, uh, Marcy, jeez, I always screw up the name of this title. Yeah,
2: Quite all right, Uh, it's completely understandable.
0: Yes. I like I just called M4 now.
1: Martha Marcy May Marlene.
0: Martha Mary May Mar- I just did it again. Oh my god.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in there. Martha M- Martha Marcy May Marlene.
0: Martha Marcy Martha Mar- i can't even say it when I know it is Martha Marcy May Marlene. That's good. With the film Martha Marcy May Marlene, and we have him here to talk to us about what he did on this film and kind of take us through the subtle ways he used sound to create the mood. But I thought the first thing we could do is get to know a little bit of your origin story, Call. So do you want to tell us how you got into the sound post design world?
2: Well, I was a kid growing up, um, you know, j- bouncing back and forth between parents who were in uh, 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 Kentucky and Iowa, and my mom was a disc jockey for a country radio station and had a boyfriend who owned a recording studio. And, you know, Sundays, my mom had, she had a daily drive show that was actually pretty, pretty popular. And, and Sundays, she had to do this sort of the, the, the requisite DJ thing where you, you know, show up at the station and play music. And it was from six to midnight. And, so I used to make mixtapes for my my brother and I my I have an older brother who's great musical taste and and had a huge effect on me and listening and finding new bands and stuff like that and so I would constantly make mixtapes for him and that turned into cutting quarter inch and making commercials for for my mom and then you know helping at her boyfriend's recording studio just sort of crawling under the console and fixing things and playing with things then that sort of all led me to not be afraid of sort of playing with different devices, certainly from the technological aspect. As I sort of got through college, uh, got through high school and into college, you know, I had a very strong sort of vein of artistic creation uh, through music and and through production. And that sort of led to, you know, circuit and integrated circuit design, uh, which, you know, led to a job out of high school that was... Uh, des- designing circuit boards, and I and I loved it, and it was fulfilling in a math sort of sense, but it was not at all fulfilling in a sort of creative, artistic sense. And as I left Utah to come east, um, I you know I had friends who were at uh, the School of Visual and Environmental Studies at Harvard, and I uh, and I went to hang out with people there, and I sort of got a job helping out. And uh, there were a couple older teachers that the the Harvard kids had access to, who I sort of you know would talk with repeatedly over and over again there was a guy Michael Callahan who worked uh in 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 VES who mixed people's movies and I sort of gained access through friends to this idea of here's a nagra and and recording sound on set recording talking I was led to it in documentary film VES visual environmental studies is a a very strong documentary program and it sort of got me to fall in love with not only the filmmaking process, but the sort of looking and listening and watching and sort of what documentary as verite, uh, was. And as I sort of started to explore that and explore sound on set and recording actors talking, um, you know, I sort of learned a language of filmmakers that I, I, you know, started to like, there were certain films that, That spoke to me there were certain films that I started to watch and 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 I learned to sort of talk about them and explain what was going on in my head with them and that sort of started to become a a learning how to hear what I like to hear and how sound works for me and as I sort of became exposed to um and certainly guys like Skip Skip Livesey um you know I sort of started to experience sound as a sort of component that's not altogether a conscious component, but becomes a sort of subconscious component of film. So there's definitely, you have see cow, hear cow kind of things. And and certainly when you're trying to mix an action movie, there's there's a lot of that that sort of happens. But also a sort of how character works and how we experience emotion and how we color emotion and how we create connections between the audience and characters by using sounds that are sometimes recognizable and sometimes not. Sounds out of context, uh, you know, sounds that compare and contrasting contrasting sounds and com- contrasting dynamic to create a sort of deeper character. And and as you sort of, you know, as I sort of watched the, the you know, the movies like Fargo that I did a whole bunch of stuff on and 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 the earlier Coen brothers and miller's crossing and and even things like you know Bruce Bailey's you know Ballantin de las Sierras um you know which is a sort of the art house sort of stuff i sort of I, I started to find how I like things to sound, and about that time I got exposed to Errol Morris. Uh, of which I had done, um, I, I worked on a film, Mister Death, for him, and then a TV series, uh, and then Fog of War. I I got enough chances through Errol to experiment with how I wanted things to sound, and and on a on a truly subconscious level, like he's really into sounds that have a sort of sense of irony that aren't what you see is what you hear. And he was—he uh, gave us enough space to to really start to sort of enjoy designing sounds, enjoy playing with plugins, enjoy playing with recording technology, and that just sort of that's just sort of grown over the years. As I've gone from you know, I started as a production sound mixer, and as I sort of grew into recording sound effects in the field, and then editing, you know, and then becoming a supervising sound editor, and now as a re-recording mixer. That's in charge of a bunch of guys who do the jobs that I've done over the years. Um, it's just become a, you know, a way for me to find a voice for the films that I work on.
1: So when you're, when you're going through that process of experimenting and playing, um, but you're still working with a director... Um, how does that relationship work? Like, how much of the story do you tell the the director of the path that you took to get to whatever sounds you ended up at?
2: <laughs> you know, I don't. When they ask, I'll tell them. But more often than not, they, uh, you, you know, they sort of love to be almost left out of the process because too much knowledge colors, you, you know what goes into it. On, um, you know, as we sort of make. you know let's just say footsteps in snow for instance Mm -hmm. you know some directors want to know what kind of snow you were walking on and this that and the other thing and some kind of directors um, don't want to know because when it comes right down to it it was really cornstarch in an old leather glove which is a foley trick from a million years ago and it just sounds right it just works Right. And sometimes I yeah, I've recorded walking on snow. I've recorded walking on 50 different kinds of snow. I've cataloged it, I've mastered it, I've loaded it all into the library. And and ultimately on the day, cornstarch in the leather glove sounds kind of better sometimes. You know, it works <laughs> better sometimes. And that's just how how it is. The you know, in Martha, we wanted to create a a sort of emotional connection to to the lead character's uh, disconnection with place, and so instead of using you know music to make emotional things for her, you know I took her voice, and uh, I'm friends with the guys at AudioEase who make a plugin called um, Altiverb mm-hmm. and Speakerphone, and uh, one of the plugins that they made a long, long time ago that I just love and and use all the time is called River Run. It's a granular synthesis engine that lets you sort of tweak, and uh, you know I took the lead character, sang some of the more important lines of the movie, and loaded it into River Run, and and with some EQ and some extra reverb and stuff, and started to tool around until I could get these sort of musical evolutions that hearken to that that draw from the frequency content of her voice. And so it's these sort of singularly alone sort of sounding. They sound almost like string instruments, and that's her talking from the actual film. And I think it, you know, it's like one of those things that it works because it is the frequency content of her, and it works because it is the sort of timber of her voice. And and yet, you know, I don't think Sean wanted to know that's what was going on. You know, I think he knew it worked for him. He didn't know, need to know why it worked for him.
1: I think you spelled out that whole process on Designing Sound. Yeah, there's a little video
2: of me screwing yeah. around once, because we were ta- Sean and I, not Sean Durkin, the director, Sean from Designing Sound, who's also a total sweetheart. Uh, he and I were talking about it, and I said, oh, well, I'll try and make a video and see if it isn't too stupid.
1: <laughs> No, you know what? I watched that video and I totally stole that on the project. I was working in it at the time.
2: It's a, it's a good, good. It's not stealing. It's homage. There's no, you know, guys who are scared of you stealing their tricks are, they're, they're not that if I, if you, if you steal my tricks, you're not taking anything out of my toolkit. The toolkit is what's between my ears. The toolkit right. is the gray stuff that's in my skull. That's the stuff that matters. How I build a, a hammers and nails part, uh, you know, I'll show anybody that. Nothing elevates the process more than all of us understanding and creating a little competition and sometimes helping each other. I mean, I, I regularly communicate with the guys that I compete with for work for new ideas and new things and often to even help and work on the films that I'm working on as they call me to help them with the films that they're working on. For sure.
1: Yeah, and and it's such a beautiful community that has evolved lately. You know, yesterday I was in the studio cutting Loop Group for a film that another member of the community, uh, Martin Penasol, you know, he reached out to me and said, hey, we need some Texas people for this film that we're doing. And it's like, yeah, I've got Texas people. I got that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I got to do this. Yeah.
1: Um, before we dive too deep into Martha Marcy May Marlene, let's just kind of set it up a little bit with uh, uh, the premise, the overall vibe of what the film is, um, what it's about.
2: Martha Marcy May Marlene is a film about, uh, a, I mean, literally. Uh, a girl who who gets taken in uh, by a cult and her the process of her finding herself and escaping it and and the sort of arc of of whether she has escaped it or not because it's become such an integral part of who she is and and as she tries to find herself she realizes that parts of herself are that that process and that leads to a level of confusion that extends beyond the sort of, the sort of you know, psychology of, you know, understanding the here and now and, and instead becomes as deep as who she really is, you know, escaping who you really are or something that has become part of you. And that sort of becomes a disconnect of her and reality. And we sort of watch her go through that. To the point at the end, we wonder if she's ever going to escape herself or it, the cult. They sort of become this this thing. That's kind of
1: it in a nutshell, which
2: was not very good.
1: <laughs> I think that was great. <laughs> the other things that I'll say about it is that it's a very kind of uh, sparse, sonically film, uh, kind of reminiscent of True Grit or No Country for Old Men with regards to, you know, lots of... Um, bgfx lots of gnats very little score very little music um lots of space lots of ability for people to sit and think and kind of just be on camera and have emotions happen with their faces yeah um
2: yeah definitely
1: and and there's a there's a constant theme of her shifting backwards and forwards in time between the the current moment where she's at the lake house with her sister and the previous moment where she was at the commune with the cult Um, and the transitions happen frequently and they happen pretty seamlessly back and forth between the two it's not like there's some big white flash and and, uh, and a color shift and she goes back it's literally you know there was the first time I actually noticed it was when she was about to go swimming and she stood up and as she went from standing sitting down to standing up her shirt changed And then she was back in the old place.
2: In that scene specifically, we had cut a couple different versions with the voices so that you could have either lead male actor's voice saying, do you want to go swimming? It was really fun to sort of experiment with how to make that seamless, how to make the the water lapping. You know, there's a whole crickets to water lapping thing going on behind that. And, you know, the move from the sort of field to going swimming. And and I think we went back to sort of the most straightforward voice, you know, hey, do you want to go swimming thing? But it was always really interesting to hear which lead male said, do you
1: want to go swimming? And it's funny because that registered to me far less than the fact that she was wearing a blue shirt when she was sitting down and a purple shirt when she stood up. It's fun
2: stuff. I'm, I mean, I love messing with the idea of A, B, C, D. In time, and making it so that you know it's not the big flashback, and you know where you are, but instead it's more like you, you know what is Slaughterhouse Five? The uh, uh, you know Billy Pilgrim is swung out of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Kurt Vonnegut book. Yeah, Kurt Vonnegut. That's much more like sort of my like what I brought into the film was that idea of of. <sighs> where she is in time has nothing to do with where the rest of us are in time. You know, it's borderline. I don't want to say time travel. That's kind of hokey. But she, she has swung out of her conscious time.
1: Yeah, and it ends up being very effective. Um, You know, I went into the film, I watched it last night, um, and I went into it with absolutely zero uh, preconceptions or knowledge about what it was going to be. Literally, the only thing I knew about it was that you worked on it, that we were going to interview you today, and that the name of it was Martha Marcy May Marlene. That's all I knew when, we, when I pulled it down and hit play. And you said it without a hiccup at all.
0: Way to show me up, Rene. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Way to go, dude.
1: <laughs> um, but that's all I knew. And so by about two-thirds of the way through, like, you know, at that moment when I saw the shirt color shift, I recognized that this was kind of going to be the, uh, the technique, right? Yeah. But by the time I was two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through it, I found myself having trouble keeping track of where I was. Yeah, um, as well you whether should. Whether I was back or whether I was forward, um, because they you know every it's not like you're you're back even more than a week, you know.
0: Yeah, one of the things that um, I think really helped sell so, that confusion, which is what I was referencing earlier, where the sound in this film uh, left you not knowing what emotions to feel, is the techniques that you use in the sound over the course of the flashbacks change. Like sometimes. Uh, There's one scene where she phones back to the commune and it's the middle of the night and she's in this lake house and you hear these really uh, almost reverbed out crickets. It's it's almost like a drone of crickets.
1: Yeah, I noticed a cricket thing for sure there. It
0: cuts back in time to the middle of the day and she's overlooking a field, but those crickets stayed with you. But in other shifts ambience changes almost immediately and the convention of going back in time is changing as the film goes it just keeps building that confusion and even like that scene it's a picture of her looking off of a field and it's terrifying <laughs> like you're like what's happening what's gonna happen what's gonna happen and it's all just because of these ambiences and yeah, techniques the, you're using the
2: big fun moments that that of course uh, you, know, you know we we point out because they're really easy and they were really fun there's one scene where she's, you know, stirring a glass. Mm-hmm. She's stirring a glass in the past, and then she cuts to her stirring a glass in the present. And that, you know, silverware, that sort of spoon in water on on gla- on a highball, you know, on a crystal highball glass is the same on both sides of the cut. And, the you know, we did it in a way that it's very sort of smooth. There's another scene where she sort of walks through the house, She she's sort of walking through the house in the present, and it turns into walking through the house in the past. And, you know, on set, she's walking over Dolly tracks and there's creeks and there's all sorts of stuff going on. And, you know, we've replaced it in a way so that there's just this nice fluid walking sort of goes through the house and you sort of, your ear can lock onto it and it takes you through this sort of time change. There's another one in the in the sort of later third of the movie where um, um, she's in the past and and you know they're one of her compatriots at the at the cult or at the farm is is cutting bread and she sort of picks up a piece of bread and the girl hits her with a spoon and we goes and the girl goes back to cutting bread and that bread becomes the same cutting sound in the present and it's very you know on set all sorts of different things are happening that we've sort of replaced and took out and changed to make what we wanted them to be. But those were the sort of, those were like easy ones to latch onto when people watch it. They'll hear those and go, oh, I get it. Let me rewind that and watch that again. Yeah. But the subtle ones were much more like, you know, shifting ambiences, shifting tones, night sounds. There's lots of night sounds and and things that hit the house. You know, when the kids are throwing rocks at the house, those sort of thumps happen later. You know, the ones that happened in the past are the ones that happen later. And there's a lot of things, you know, little subtle connections like that. There's also a lot of, you know, one of the things that we've sort of refined over the years uh, and another technical trick that I just, Hey, when you're cutting BGs, try this on for size kind of thing is learning that hard cuts, like enjoying the picture editors cut from scene to scene, and not necessarily intra-scene cuts, but extra scene from one scene to another, hard BG cuts as compared to faded BG cuts, slow down time and pick up time, hard cuts have a general tendency, and this is just my opinion, I've found to make time go faster, to sort of rush characters through things, that hitting those cuts, even if the scene is you know a minute long or two minutes long, as the scenes change, hearing the bee gees really cut, uh, seems to move pacing, move you know, get our adrenaline working on a subconscious level, as opposed to fading bee Gees that sort of softly blow from one into the other with these long fades, seems to sort of slow time down. And we used that to great effect on on Martha. There's a pacing that goes with Zach's editing. Uh, Zach Stewart Pontier, he's going to kill me for saying it that way. Um, Zach's a fantastic editor, just an unbelievable editor. And he really was gracious in letting us work his cut more than what he had done. I mean, he came to us and said, this is how far I got it. And he was really open to, instead of saying, no, do it my way, do it my way, do it my way, to saying, what can you bring to it? I need more than I can do.
1: So did he adjust the cut based on what you guys were doing?
2: Several times. We gave him sound effects and he would make tweaks and he would listen to temp scratch mixes and he would adjust things. But he would also, you know, he was really good when we brought a new idea to the table with fucking A that's way better than my idea I mean he was really good with there's a lot of editors who don't want to hear it and he was really good with you know this is what I got and this is what I'm looking for what more can you do and and that was that's just such a pleasure. You feel so much more up a part of the team when when you work that way, as opposed to this is my guide track. It doesn't sound like my guide track. It needs to be like my guide track, which makes me uh, makes us in the sound department not feel like we're on the team. It makes us feel like we're just shoveling up after the elephant who's just left the three ring circus, and and nobody likes to do that. that sucks for everyone,
1: right? Um, tell me about um, you, at what point were you brought into the film? Um, were you involved in any pre-production or production?
2: At um, uh, what point was I brought in? That's a great question. Um, Zach, who cut it, um, uh, I had been introduced to Zach in uh, during Catfish, mm-hmm. and um, you know uh, the post one of the producers of Catfish had sort of. It sort of came to me on, on recommendation from, from a post supervisor or somebody, and um, I went to watch Catfish, and it was, you know, I, for those of you who have seen it, it's a brilliant doc. Uh, I mean, just... Is it a doc? Yeah, well, yeah,
0: full on. Yeah, yeah it's fantastic.
2: Uh, there are definitely places where, you, you know, somebody went, oh my god, did you get that on camera? Hold on, film it again. That happens all the time. But true to its heart, is it a documentary? Yes, very, very, very much so. Cool. It is one of those films that is, I mean, it coined a phrase. It's so, you know, and to me, the idea of flexing people's understanding of what you are in reality versus what you are in makeup land, you know, in the movie industry, we've been fucking with that concept for, for, for ages And now, all of a sudden, the rest of the world is is messing with that concept. It's brilliant to me. And to truly explore it, not only that, to not take advantage or overly dramatize someone who is obviously a person in great need, who is obviously hurting, so much so that they've created an alter ego for themselves to explore the world with because they obviously can't explore the world with their real self, to not take advantage of that is completely admirable. I have great respect for for those guys. And so as I sort of got to know Zach and as we sort of made Catfish and sort of worked through the sound elements of which there are a great many, we sort of found a common language And as we finished Catfish Up, I think, you know, two or three months after the fact, I was in the city doing God knows what. And I literally got a call from Zach saying, you got to come to the editing room and listen to something. I was like, listen to it. And He's like, yeah, listen, watch. I don't know. You just got to come in. What are you doing? And, And I, you know, I know when people are that excited about what they're doing, it usually is good fun. To go watch, go experience what they're experiencing, join them in whatever their journey is. And so I came down and I mean, he was like assembling dailies or something. He was, he was, you know, very, it was very early in the editorial process. And so we started talking about, you know, I watched what he was putting together, which was awesome. And we immediately started talking about what what is very much one of my favorite subjects, which is the geography of character how characters interact with place, who I, not who I am, who I am, where I am at, because I think sound often grounds character so that we can build on top of it, you know, sound places a character at a place, so, and that gives them a foundation to build a house on top of. That that makes the cool little looks, the cool little eye movement, the cool little lip movement that actors give you all of a sudden mean much more when you know who they are, where they are. So, I, you know, we just immediately started talking about stuff like that. And it seemed like Sean and I communicate pretty well. Um, You'd have to ask him, but, you know, I certainly like dealing with him. And uh, I, I actually love dealing with him. Those guys are the guys at Borderline. Sean Durkin, Antonio Campos, and Josh Mond are three of the most youngest, most accomplished, most creative guys I know. They're just fucking awesome. And I've worked with all three of them now, and I and I and I adore them all. Um, Antonio's got a film called Simon Killer that should be coming out, if it's not out or something like that, which is fantastic. It's like the logical next step to the sound design of Martha. And then uh, I just did a very short piece with Josh Mond, um, which is also entirely sound design. It's beautiful sound design piece of a guy in a hotel room. That's just unbelievable. And it's only like seven minutes long, it's brilliant.
0: So, Carl, just to give you a quick background on how we uh, came to be speaking today. A few episodes ago on our podcast, we talked about how to best interact with directors because on a forum, someone had kind of written in and through the director of the project they were working on under the bus and just complained about them. So that led me to reading on your uh, blog, you wrote about your experience on Martha, and you wrote that Sean, the director, listened to new ideas, used those ideas to create even better ideas, and is often the case when we had something that had to go you knew why, and it was always for the better of the film. Yeah. And we were thinking about how that's, like, you seem to have such a great symbiosis. And you mentioned uh, that you still love the flies, but they didn't make it in. So I thought that was funny, too.
2: Yeah. There, so there's the a whole idea, and Martha, like, that we, this whole road that we went down, that, that every time you sort of saw the lead character of the cult, you, you'd hear little flies in the background. And, you know, my dog had... Uh, this is a really funny story. My dog had, of course, taken. A, I live in the in the woods, and my dog had taken a crap in the driveway, and it was a hot summer day. And and in walking past it, it was just teeming with flies. So of course, I did what any good sound designer would do: is I got a recorder and and stuck it right right up next to the crap. I mean, <laughs> really close, and and made an hour long recording of of flies and they're not it's not a swarm of flies it's like 20 flies so it sounds really great, it's got great detail and it's very shapeable. So we built this whole thing with flies around the sort of cult guy and it was really subtle and it was too much I mean it was too much, it was too good and it was totally cool but it wasn't good for the story it was just totally cool Right. The deal is and and, and I've had great Experiences with directors and editors, and I've had awful ones. I mean, I'm good at what I do because I have fallen down so many times. I have fucked it up so many times, pardon my French, that I've learned. I've gained experience by hitting my thumb with the hammer countless times. So, ultimately... What The films that I try to work on, the editors that I try to work with, are the editors who involve me in the creative process. They recognize that I am like the shortstop or the third baseman or the, you know, they get that to get the guy to make the double play, I'm an integral part of that process. And there are some editors who, who and directors who, who, who get it, who roll with it. And there are some who don't need that to be that way. They need it to just be about the decisions that they want to make. And, and it's not that they are more or less creative or better or worse than. They're just not the ones that I particularly want to, to expound my career working with. So I actively hunt out I actively look for and try and form relationships with the people who they have an idea and it is very much a, I am looking at the box from this side. What do you think? And and I can say openly and honestly, huh, I definitely see the box from that side. I completely understand. But I'm just going to take a walk around to this side of the box and I see a little bit that I could maybe add. And the directors that I truly love are the directors who go, holy fuck, I got, a, I got a bigger idea, you know? And they all of a sudden explode with a whole new thing that the combination of not, it wasn't A, it wasn't B, but A plus B equaled much more than C. And that's a, you know, that takes a team effort, but that also takes a certain amount of humility yeah, I was going
1: to say it takes a lack of ego to do that.
2: Yeah, it takes a certain amount of humility, not only on the part of the director, on the part of the editor, and on the part of the sound editor. And often that means, like, look, I spend 10 hours working on one little thing that I think is the coolest fucking thing in the world, but it highlights an aspect of the character that they don't want to show. They don't want to shine the flashlight on that part of the character. And you need to understand that, oh, shit, yeah, you're absolutely right. We should get rid of that. And there are times when I'm like, I don't want to get rid of that. I worked my ass off. That was great. But it's very much like the old story of, you know, and it's like in some Walter Murch book or some, it's in someone's book somewhere where you know, the director and the picture editor are in a room and they're going over this scene and there's the big crane shot and they keep talking about the scene and they keep building it and building it. And it's all around this big crane shot because that crane was $20,000 for that shot. And at some point they realize, wait a sec, you know, the thing that's fucking us is that crane shot. If we get rid of that crane shot, this is going to work much better. And that kind of has to carry into sound is you can't, Fall in love with the thing you spent 12 hours doing Because sometimes it just doesn't
1: help You know where I learned that was I read Stephen King's book on writing Mm -hmm. And he has an anecdote there Where he talks about his, his philosophy of killing your babies Yeah which is, you know, you'll come up with this beautiful, beautiful turn of phrase. You'll come up with this just insanely perfect piece of prose. But if it doesn't fit the overall story, if it doesn't serve the overall story, if it doesn't improve the overall story, you have to kill it no matter how good it is. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And and just learning to be okay with that is a is a a
1: are a hard hard long process right yeah you recorded an hour of flies and meticulously cut them in there and then had to mute the track
2: yeah yeah it just it just happens an hour dude i've so, done i've done 3 weeks of work on things and had it all get thrown out cuz it just didn't work
0: yeah.
1: But that's that's the creative process. I mean, that's how you do creative, cool, creative things is by trying things and then, and then axing them.
0: When I was in film school, we had a project where we had to shoot film. This was actually on film through Bolex. And uh, then we were editing. We could shoot whatever we wanted. But what we didn't know was when we showed our teacher the uh, footage, he would then physically take what he deemed the best shot, like the money shot, and he would take that chunk of film away from us and make us finish the film, edit it, without, without the most that. beautiful scene or whatever. <laughs> and and that really opened your eyes. Because you're like, that's what holds it all together. And then it's gone. And you're like, oh, no, that didn't really hold it all together. That was just one piece of the puzzle. Yeah. And half the time it did work better because we'd be climbing up on a rooftop to get this amazing long shot. But then, you know, it took your focus from the characters away or whatever. To
2: also really remember that... I mean, ultimately, we do this in service of the director's vision, and in as much as i you know i I can't stand it when when everything I bring to the table is shot down or or they don't ask me to expound expand to grow the creative process it's those aren't my favorite guys to work for, and generally I figure out a way to not do it I mean. Much to my bank account's dismay, <laughs> you know ultimately, once I make the decision to get involved with a director, you know i 'll say to them, "Look, I have a devil's advocate argument that i 'm going to put out there and and you, you know just take it or leave it. My experience is going into this argument that i 'm going to make, but it by no means is there to dictate anything i 'm just there to illustrate another view." And and it is always, with complete respect of what you're trying to do, I'm trying to help. And most directors are very favorable with that kind of discussion. And they often take into it into account, and they often still make their own decision. And ultimately, when they do, you know, you sort of got to go with that. But I choose to try and form relationships with people that I trust. There's a very young director that... uh travis singer who i did a film with called desert cathedral and you know there were there were several things that we would go back and forth with in in order to try and find the right sound for the movie and and there were times when you know he could articulate what i what needed to happen and there were times when he he couldn't he's a he's a younger guy he couldn't say what's wrong with something he could just say it's not finding it it's not perfect for me and so, it's, okay. Well, let me try and experiment this way or that way, or try and give me some, look for some more words, some more direction. But but ultimately, my my ability to find a trust in him. I trust him. He's a good director. I we found a way to communicate, and 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 his decision making process was one that could encourage my genuine trust in his decisions. Does that mean I liked every decision? No, but I trusted him. And building that trust is not easy. We're talking about really hard shit. Trusting people in creative arenas is difficult. So my, my biggest support for people who, you know, I can't stand the decisions the director was making. Well, figure out how to either trust or not trust the director. And if you do not trust that person, then get a different job. But if you do find yourself in a way that you working in a way that you can give your trust to that person, then give it freely, openly. Let them make the decisions and support them in the decisions, because that's where the best that's where the most creative work is done. And And luckily for me, I've been able to find relationships where I can do that.
1: Uh, you know i think those types of of relationships just kind of naturally have a gravitational pull to one another you know people can tell if you really enjoy working on their project or not oh yeah
2: yeah now uh, that i'm old it's really hard to hide yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm really in or i'm not you know and it's hard to to hide when i'm not
1: Well, uh, but uh, conversely to that, when you really are, when you're in and you're totally on board and you're giving everything you've got, um, you know, people can tell that as well. Yeah, I think so. And you really start to become part of of a team. You know, that's why, you know, a lot of directors have a crew of people that they trust. And it goes beyond just the actors. It's more than, you know... um, it's more than just director actor it's it's the rest of the team as well and you know and and the same is true of, of video cutters and on audio people you know.
2: Uh, Robert Stone the guy who directed Pandora's Promise this is our fourth or fifth or sixth film together. Like I trust Robert implicitly and and he I would argue the same with me. And there are times when he knows like ugh I can't stand this but I you have more experience than me with this and I bet you're right. I'm going to go with what you're saying because I think you're right even though I hate it. We go back and forth with that a lot, but he, you know, he makes just awesome documentaries. And, and I love that relationship of, you you know, he trusts what I do, and I trust what he does. And it's very, it's very rewarding. It's very fulfilling.
1: So tell me about the spotting session on Martha. Um, How do you go about it? How much of what you spotted made it into the final mix with regards to, you know, ideas and concepts? Like, what was it like?
2: the way that most of my spotting sessions work are we often i try and hey let's get together and watch the film before you you guys even think about locking in the case of of martha i had seen lots of assemblies and seen scene assemblies as well as you know as assemblies of the whole show but ultimately we try and just watch the film and talk about everything and there's I find no need to talk about doorknobs and door handles closing or car doors or sound of cars because, you know, most good directors let us do what we're going to do for stuff like that. Um, But in terms of arc and character and, and tone, we sort of talk a lot about you know, what is this character at, what what are they, you know, psychologically experiencing at this point? And what are they experiencing at this point? And, you know, and in that we cover the sort of ADR and the footsteps and the sort of, and how should this guy sound and she's a dominant person or not, or, you know, there's things like that. But really we want to know as much as we can about <clears throat> sort of character and shape of character, and, and I take notes and stuff. And then I sort of, you know, you know most directors and, that I work with regularly, editors and directors, because I work very closely with the editors as well, they, we ask them to sort of give us a give us a little bit of time and let us put some things together. And, and let us, you know, give us some time and understand that when we come back, it is not going to be the guide track. It is not going to be exactly like what they want. And we will have gotten some of it right and some of it wrong. And the stuff that we get wrong, we'll work on. And the stuff that we get right, we'll expound on. But give us the creative freedom to expand the ideas past where they are in the avid. And, and you know, you can sort of tell who you, who we like working with because the people that I like working with most say, yeah, do it up. Show me, show me something better than what I got. And every so often they're like, no, nah, I like what I got. And every so often they're like, no, actually that door is way cooler than what I got. Way to go. Good stuff. So that's kind of, the process is not that complicated. Like, talk about the movie. Do you stop and start? How do you take notes oh, yeah, yeah. it 's an all day affair it 's a lunch affair
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, mine are too for sure if If, if I have a director i 'm really enjoying working with our spotting sessions take for damn ever, yeah, because <laughs> we get into philosophy and okay, totally
2: totally and 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 a lot of that process, if you haven 't worked with that director before is you know finding out who they are. But, you know, for me, now that most of, you know, a lot of the directors that I work with are are sort of repeat offenders, the, you know, we sort of know that stuff. But, but yeah, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, not just arc and character, but what kind of music they listen to and what kind of art they like to look at and what kind of, you, you know, what other films are they into? You know, the whole, we cover, it's a whole sort of, sort of psychological breakdown bonding experience. Uh, how do you take notes? You know, with a piece of paper and a pen. Really? Yeah. I I actually use the markers and Pro Tools. Um, I use the. I'll, I'll tell you. I because I'm often you know going to the city or meeting people at their at their place or you know traveling around when I you know when I go spot with a director it's like, you know every so often it's like hey can you come to L A. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure, of course I can. Can you come down <laughs> to the city? Yeah, sure, of course I can. So it's it's kind of like, yes, I can, you, you know, uh, where and when. And then, I, I, you know, it's not I don't always have a Pro Tool station in front of me. Right. When I create markers for my crew, it's very different. I load everything up into a session and I make markers in my session. And they're detailed by, you know, uh, DIA, EFX, AMB, FLY, MUS. Uh, You know, they sort of break everything out by job. Um, TBRs are to be recorded because I like lots and lots of, I mean, I have a huge library, but I like things. I like new recordings of things. I like new stuff. And uh, so then I throw that session out to everyone on my crew because there's a couple guys who work in close proximity to me, but there's a couple guys who are sort of all over the place. And that's how my crew communicates. And I have to say, as publicly as I can, I really, really, really want Avid and Pro Tools to revamp the markers pages for markers categories for markers organizational types for markers think about how much shit we could actually get done if markers didn't suck and i really 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 how to encourage say i mean we're on pro tools 11 right i've been talking to to tim sebo and people at Digidesign since oh my god for 10 over 10 years over from four, since 4.3 about m- m- revamping the markers. We're on 11 and they still haven't done it.
1: So when you cue a, a film out for uh, for notes for your your crew, are you using different Pro Tools sessions and laying down different markers in a different session?
2: No, 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 no. It's one session. And remember when you can only have 99 markers and now it's 999. I usually work in super sessions. Um, I mean, Pro Tools is certainly strong enough now, you know, the HDX hardware is fucking, is pretty powerful. So I usually work in a super session and, uh, and, and usually that's, that's how I get, you know, all my notes to everyone.
1: You know, what we do is we use EtiQ. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, are you familiar with that one? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So we use that. So I'll, I'll do the same thing. I'll have, you know, I'll have a, you know, a, a you know, a dialogue track note, and I'll have ADR tracks per, and you just mark them with region groups, and then you type into the the name of the region group whatever the note is, and it spits out nice spreadsheets.
2: You know, from when I was making cue sheets, used to be great, and and certainly when, you know, like for Foley cue sheets and stuff like that. Um, But we just sort of got to a certain point where, you know, my crew, I've worked with the same crew for, I mean, you know, the guys who work for me have been around for quite some time. And so they kind of know what I'm talking about. Right. They got a pretty good sense of it. And and even the Foley guys, you know, either Marco Costanzo or, or Chris Bain, like, they just know, they know me. They know what I'm sort of looking for. And anything that's a hero thing, like, I, you know, well, I usually, you know, if it's a really hero thing, I, I'll do it myself. You know, or I'll tell them, like, hey, it's going to get played at 11. This is going to get played at 11, so it better be good. <laughs> the guys know, like, they're not going to be able to... This isn't going to be a normalized norval, sound effect. They're not going to turn this one down. They're going to turn it up and lean on it. So, you know, they sort of... They get a pretty good sense of that. And and as I want creative freedom from directors and editors, I have to respect the process and give that same creative freedom to my crew. right. You know, part of that is in in the land of in the land of markers and notes, being descriptive, but also being descriptive in a way that they can they can experiment,
0: leave space for them. Yeah, yeah, breathing space. On Martha, I noticed a couple things in the credits. A, there wasn't a huge sound crew on it. No, no, me, me, Matt, John, maybe one or two other people. These are uh, people that you work with regularly. Yeah, all the time. And how far back does that relationship go?
2: Matt Snedeker and I have been working together for. Um, 10 or 15 years and uh and john's been on my crew for the last five
0: you got a full title card in the credits is that something that you had to fight for or that just happened i did (laughs) there you go good answer you know
2: here's the thing i first of all i'm i have never considered myself a sound designer i know guys who are sound designers and they are so much smarter than me i like really consider myself to be quite an idiot um I, you know, Craig Hennigan is a really smart guy. I'm not as smart as Craig. Uh, you know, I I I will always sort of consider myself a supervising sound editor, and I have started in the last two years to maybe the last year to really be able to hear dialogue well, to be able to mix dialogue. You know, I'm starting to get to where I think I can mix dialogue as well as it. I could think I can hear it in my own head, so. I I am the last person who would insist on a credit in any way, shape, or form. I have a pretty good idea of what I do every on every film. I have a pretty good idea of how important I am to the film, and I don't need a little bit of text at the end of the movie to tell me that. Uh, you know, I used to work for Sydney Lamette and Sydney used to say, "Your credit is your paycheck," and and frankly, that kind of rings true for me. I mean. There is nothing fancy attached to to a couple of lines of text at the end of a movie, but there's a lot fancy attached to a director saying to my face, thank you very much, and and calling me on the next one. I don't worry too much. I mean, Robert gave me a sound design credit at the head of Pandora's Promise, and and I was embarrassed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to talk about the dialogue on Martha. Um it really stood out to me as being exceptionally good god it was brutal (laughs) i could tell here's the thing i could tell that the elements that you got were probably brutal not by how they sounded in the mix but by how they looked on camera i mean these are people that are outside speaking softly whispering um
2: you, you know first of all when when you're on like uh, HD cameras and you know the new technology and and you know the the airy Alexa and stuff like that. You you know you forget how. I mean, in like a five years, you forget how bad film cameras sound. And oh my God, learning how to get rid of camera noise all over again. Was really, I mean, we just fought for every single line of the movie, and it's not because the production guys did a bad job or anything at all. You know, you you do the best you can on set. You're up against shit on set that you we just can't even fathom in post.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: as an as an old production sound mixer, I recognize that. Um, it just is, you know, it's just hard. It's just hard. I think what what was really hard was actually keeping the tone of the voices true to what I know about the actors. Um You, you know, um, the lead female is she's got a really good voice and I really like the quality of her voice and maintaining that from body mic to boom mic to body mic to boom mic is, you know, that's a, that's a skill. That's a tricky job. Um, I, of all the actors in that show, um, Brady Corbett is probably the one that I've worked with over and over and over again who who I personally know and and enjoy my time with and you know making sure Brady sounds like what I know Brady to sound like making sure that the nuances that he brings to a performance and and not just Brady but every actor you, you know that's a skill and a craft and and to to represent to help them do their best work you know from from a sound perspective is Boy, is it hard. Yeah. You know, I got to admit, like in the last, I mean, shit, in the last two years alone, you know, processing power in terms of computers has actually let me start to learn how to learn, to has has helped me learn to use like RX effectively, to learn some of, you know, WNS, the Cedar effectively, to not overuse them. Right. Have a gentle touch and yet let them do what they need to do. You know, to find companies like, I, you know, I mentioned Isotope RX. I've, I holy crap, in spectral repair. Yep. I've done shit that makes people go, oh my God, how did you do that?
1: Yeah. Were you fighting insects? Were you fighting any cicadas and crickets and stuff? All the time. Yeah. All the time.
2: And the fortunately for me is that we, I live geographically very close to where they filmed. So it was really easy to go get. You know room tones and things that were matchable and and buildable elements, but yeah, I mean we've spent the whole entire time fighting awful cicadas and awful night crickets and stuff, and yet we're yeah you know able to make it work just by virtue of being diligent. Cicadas are the worst. It's funny because in Woodstock the the seventeen year cicada thing didn't really hit, but if you went across the river, it was like hearing thousands
1: of people screaming yeah in texas that was last year and it's insane it's over 100 db it's insane yeah yeah insane it was just like holy crap that could make a grown man go crazy um and it was so important at that well hey i'll say this i didn't notice any adr at all the only part the only line i think that i could tell absolutely was added was uh when uh he said dinner's ready um and he wasn't on camera there yeah um Everything else I didn't notice at all as ADR. I, I just, I could tell that you were sitting there fighting for the production dialogue. And I think it was probably, it was so important to the mix because of how subtle everything else was. All the BGFX and all the Foley. I was going to ask you about how you approach footsteps and grass because that is the bane of my existence. And you did it very well. But you have to have super, super clean dialogue for that to even make sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, very, yes. There's a lot of ADR in that movie. Um... It's probably, uh, I don't know, I'd say about a third of the movie. Wow. Um, And, you know, the trick to ADR is performance. The trick isn't how it sounds. The trick isn't matching it. The trick isn't matching microphones. The trick isn't making, you you know, a seamless, you you know, analyzing two sides of EQ and and using magic spectrum to make them work. Uh, Although that all helps. The trick is if the performance works, it works, and if the performance doesn't work, it doesn't. Did you supervise the ADR? Uh, no, me, probably only by phone. <laughs> yeah. Can she do it this way? Please, dear God, make her do it right. We need the line. Yeah, you, you know, talking with Sean, I, I totally don't remember. The truth of the matter is I don't remember. But I do remember uh, dealing with Sean and letting him know how important the performance was to the knob twiddling and i think he gets it you you know, you know he gets that i we don't want to replace anything he gets that we don't want to add anything so you, you know when we have to add stuff it needs to be a continuation of the performance and uh and when we need to lean on adr for technical reasons you know it's because we don't have a choice and and so he's very insistent on on us on a performance that feeds what was gotten on set and I could never, I mean, Jesus, if you ever, you know, actors' ability to re- recall what they were experiencing on set and reproduce it in some surgically sterile environment, it just sucks. It's really hard. We um, we had a great experience on, on Mona Fastfold's film Sleepwalker, which doesn't come out for a while. You know, we brought all of the actors up to the country. They all came up and stayed at my house for a couple of days. And we recorded all the ADR running around in the woods and in the house and stuff. And almost none of it we recorded to picture or in sync. We edited it to sync, but mostly we went for vibe. Amazing. That was unbelievable.
1: It's amazing how much you can get away with just doing that.
2: Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, it's like I would say this over and over again if people would listen. Vibe and performance is so much more important than, than sync or the right microphone.
1: Yeah. I had a little short film that I did recently where, yeah, we just grabbed the film and chucked it on an iPad and went out to where these people were. Yeah. And, uh, And cut the couple lines that we needed and they worked out great i had one where the guy was like you know breaking down crying and it was perfect i mean yeah, and you're like that's it and i'm sitting here going i am so not in a booth right now we are outside in the backyard and we've got to wait for that plane to go by and it was just it was great it was so perfect
2: yeah and it 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 works um the same is true with a lot of the foley and martha there is a certain amount that we did um that that uh, I think um, Marco worked on it. I'm not sure. I sort of forget. He's Marco is my sort of local New York guy who I go to for Foley stuff. He's a genius. Um, and I think a lot of it was we recorded in the woods re- around the house. You know, the like the opening scene with the girls running through the forest. It's all that's all like that entire whole entire opening of the movie is fake and it's um or you know re- re- replaced. And a lot of that was us running through the woods, and a lot of our, you know, grass footsteps is, you know, like we've we've definitely we go out into the yard where there's a lot of grass, and we dump a bunch of quarter-inch tape on the ground with the grass, and just sort of, you know, make it make it happen. But in the in this day and age, with the advent of iPads and fantastic work, I mean, you know, esoteric mic preamps. Uh, esoteric microphones and, and recorders the ability to walk out into the woods and record really good stuff is just awesome you you can do it and that doesn't mean I, I I run away from Foley either you know guys like Marco and Chris Bain do and there's an army of guys out in LA who do unbelievably good work that that is a very controlled, you know, you know. That when you need to lean on that fader, you know you can because
1: they've they've got everything under control. Um, a couple other spots that were very interesting to me was when he was teaching her how to drive the boat, and it, that was a moment you were discussing earlier how you can use a hard cut to speed things up. And he said, "Do you want me to show you how to ride the boat?" Come on, I'll teach you how to drive the boat. And then you, and then we cut out to it. It's okay. And it's a, it's a hard cut to a loud boat.
0: Come
1: on! And they're on the boat, and they're talking, and it's really low. I mean, the, the, the speech is there, but it's way below the sound of that boat. And you really do feel that as he leans on the throttle and pushes it even harder. And then it cuts right back. Come on. To a quiet shot. Yep. I loved that decision. I felt that was a super ballsy sound decision. You know, the funny thing is, is it's
2: not, the boat is not super loud, but but it's very quiet before the boat. Right. And it's very quiet after the boat. And that makes that sort of shift to a motor, to an engine, lots of wind, the inability to hear them. I mean, you can't hear them because it seemed louder when you couldn't hear them that well. If you look at the meters, the scene's not that loud at all. But when you can't really hear them all that well, it feels really loud. You're leaning in for the dialogue, and that makes the
1: boat feel even louder. Yeah, and as I was watching in my house last night with the air conditioner on and the dog click-clacking around and all of that, like, I lost most of that dialogue. Yeah, they Um, don't say anything important. And that's kind of that was what I was going to say, though, is like that shot wasn't about what they were saying. It was about the vibe of what was happening. Totally. Totally. Knowing that you
2: can let that go. In fact, the, you know, the tension of that scene arrives from the earlier scene, which is, you know, when we're I, I mean, first of all, the earlier scene on the kitchen floor and him talking on the phone in the background and then walking in and talking to her. That's all like that's all ADR that carrying the inherent sexual tension from the earlier scene you're you're basically in a voyeuristic that you as in the audience we are in a very voyeuristic position of her we are literally looking down her shirt we are definitely looking at her we are definitely objectifying her in a subconscious sort of way she is in a subservient position she's cleaning she's wa- she's washing Yeah, You know, this is all like sort of feeds into how we sort of start to look at her character. We're almost leering. And then we cut to the boat, which is like this sort of, you know, are they on a date? Right. Did they go on a date? Is he going to fuck her? You know, that's like all of that starts to get challenged. And to set up the next scene of them talking and how awkward they are. You need a moment to ask yourself all these questions. And the volume of the boat and the sort of not being able to hear the dialogue lets you ask all the
1: questions you don't really want to ask yourself right before the next scene. Exactly. And, and I thought that was, like I said, I thought that was a super ballsy mix choice. Thank you. <laughs> and I thought it was cool.
2: You shouldn't smoke.
1: The other really obscure dialogue was when they were behind the window. Well, they're outside.
0: The camera's inside, but they're Camera's outside.
1: inside. They're outside cleaning a window. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, Martha and her sister.
0: I love that moment. And it is
1: super, super obscure dialogue. There's no mid-range or high. It's just kind of low-end and echo on them. Oh, yeah. Just the like, phone ring in that. Yeah, and then the phone rings. Super loud inside the house.
2: You can blame me for all of those bad choices.
1: I thought that was awesome.
0: Yeah, that was great.
1: I did lose all of that dialogue in my house too, though I have no idea what they were saying there. But
2: I love the idea of, of, of the space and separation and, and sometimes separation to communicate separation between characters, we need to make separation between us and the character. And and Sean like gives you the opportunity to do that. He understands that. To really get into the separation between her and her sister, we need to create little moments of separation between us, the viewer, and you know, and the characters on screen. And so that's a moment where we can do that. And yeah. he's confident enough with his decisions to let me be confident enough to to I'm not going to push the, the 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 fader a little bit. I'm going to push the fader hard. I'm going to hit it, you know. And so he's really good with that.
0: Another great moment in, along those veins is at the beginning of the movie when she calls her sister, and she—you can tell she's confused. She doesn't even have the phone up to her ear half the time. Yep. And as an audience member, it's really hard to hear what the sister's saying. Yeah. But that kind of echoes that she's not really hearing what the sister's saying either. And and then kind of like a jalopy truck goes by that obscures half a, half a sentence Hello. of the sister. Hi. Yeah. It was a really effective way of letting us know that she's confused because you're confused with what you're hearing as well.
2: I don't think we had much choice with the truck. (laughs) 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 And we were, you know, we were kind of like, yeah, but it's working for us. We love it. (laughs) We had actually ADR'd that and we decided we just didn't like it. It wasn't as cool. You know, the thing that I like the most in that opening scene is, and, you know, watch it again. Way way back, you can hear the sound of the lawn sprinkler.
0: Um, I have to go. Um, I I can't stay gone. So, um. talking <laughs> about
1: mm-hmm. I remember that.
2: And it's way way, you know, and it kind of comes in and it goes out, and it comes in and it goes out, and it just sets up this this whole sort of the sister is middle America, is the status quo and her world is not there's very little mechanized sounds in any way shape or form on the farm in fact there's I don't think there's any and it is a very it was like like that sound is so Americana it is so apple pie and, and American flags white picket fences and little dogs you know and 3.2 kids it's the things like that that they were really open to us
1: bringing to the mix yeah, for sure. Uh, and one other moment that I thought that was a very interesting choice, and you can tell me if this was ADR or not, it might have been, was, I don't know if you'd call it a rape scene. I guess it was a rape scene, right? Oh, uh, the rape scene? Yeah, it was a rape scene.
2: Well, um, that you know, the rape scene was a big fight.
1: I mean, the rape scene was, we went back and forth with the rape scene a lot. Um, to give context, there's there's a moment in which Martha is is raped by the leader of the commune, um, she just kind of wakes up, and he's on top of her, and she opens her mouth as though she's screaming, but she hardly makes any noise.
2: Yeah, yeah. She she did not make much noise. She she the sound that you hear is what what uh, the actress did on set. She did a fantastic job. She's it's like post drug. There's a whole like they drug the girls. Right. I you know I really 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 wanted to not hear her at all so that the audience put that, they filled in all the blanks. I have this really big theory about the the audience is the third part that we need. We need their psychological, we need the contribution of inside their head. What they're thinking is a is a component of a movie. We need that component to make good movies. So we need to manipulate in ways that they bring that component to the film. If they sit in their seats and, and gel and get fat, uh, then you're not really making a good movie. You're making a good amusement park ride, which is fine. That, that's, that's a very viable thing. But in the term, terms of the films that I most like to work on, we get that component as part of the movie and it becomes a more complete film. And with that in mind... You, you know, we, I, we had for the longest time played her as silent. And at the literally the 13th hour, we sort of realized that that was too upsetting.
1: Hmm. That not hearing her was really fucking people up. like they were. Yeah, because in your mind, you would imagine, I mean, her mouth opens up, it looks like she's screaming.
2: People literally couldn't handle it. And especially because you know the, the scene right after that, she wakes up and pisses herself, yeah, and or she pisses herself and then wakes up, and I mean, people couldn't couldn't deal, and it, I mean, really, they couldn't. It was too much, and so we actually had to put the sound of her back in to give to pe- make, let people not have to access it a hundred percent.
1: You know what I find with with realism and with Foley and with the lack of score specifically is that it grounds you into what's actually happening. It gives you a sense of kind of grittiness.
2: There's not only is there a lot of score, but, but Danny and Sonder, the two guys who did the score, who, who I have, you know, we have had a long relationship that started with Martha. I, I would be hard pressed to find composers who bring to the table what they do.
1: Yeah, they did a killer thing with the uh, when she's when she's at the party. Oh, awesome! And she sees the uh, the guy from the commune serving her beer. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, what happened on the score there? And the other, you know, the other part. I did notice score. I noticed score more as drone, and it kind of sat in between what you were doing and what the score was doing in certain spots, especially early. Most of the drone is me. <clears throat> most of the sort of musical stuff is them.
2: I I think what I love most about that party the you know it goes from from a source queue to a to sort of outside and the source queue has like three locations to it sort of coming down the stairs the living room and then sort of like imagine you have like little crappy outdoor speakers out on the porch mm-hmm. and that completely becomes a sort of music moment that that takes over everything all the way through the bedroom and and i
1: loved and it's dissonant and it's loud fucking awesome
2: they really do stuff that lets you really bite into the music it really lets you grab a hold of a fader and push things hard and i really like being you know i like score that i can hit hard there's plenty of things in life that i want to turn down music is usually one of those things that i want like look if they're talking okay fine portman style i'll turn it down a little bit but when they kiss i really want to go for it and they really
1: do make music that lets you do that so what happened, I mean, my impression of that moment, as we're jumping around the movie randomly, um, <laughs> my impression of that moment was, yeah, I, I did kind of, ca- it, it struck me as music, right? Because you cut to, A, you, you've cut to a scene where there's a lot of people, and there's just not a lot of people in many of the shots in this film. So suddenly there's a bunch of people around, which is very different feeling. Um, and then she goes and she has this moment with a guy that she recognizes from the cult, yeah he's actually not he's got nothing to do with the cult okay well she's, she seems to recognize him as a guy from the cult she at least confuses him for a guy from the cult exactly and she has this moment she slaps the drink away from him and there's I don't know if it's a long crossfade or if just the way that the score was written in I never, I never perceived the moment when it shifted from source music to score until I was way into it yeah you know it's long since past it's long since past she's in the other room there she's freaking out and crying they're trying to grab her and calm her down she's saying don't touch me and the score is just loud and it's dissonant and it's overpowering their voices even though they're yelling um and then they get her some water and as she grabs the water the score just it doesn't cut off it stops musically it just lets go Yeah. It sort of lets go, and I think I had something underneath it.
0: Yeah, there is a drone in there that plays through the fade-out and then into the next scene it continues.
2: Yeah, which
1: is probably me. Kind of like
0: a room-tone drone. Yeah.
1: And it was at the moment that she started drinking the water, the moment the yeah, water touched exactly. her lips.
2: Well, you know, you can actually, if you listen, he walks into the bathroom and gets a glass of water and, and some pills and then comes back. And you sort of can feel all that. You can't really hear it, but you can sort of have a feel of it happening. And I mean, just the, the beauty of Danny and Sonder is they, they get, you know, what I'm doing and I sort of get what they're doing. And they, I think they wrote in a way that let us do all of those things.
1: Yeah, it was a very powerful moment of the film I thought. And it was weird because it didn't seem to me to um to be for anything specific. It just seemed like it was cool. Um I I think it I mean, yeah, I think it was cool, but I
2: also think it is, you know, representative of how unconnected she is. Like she is that music. She is completely
1: unconnected. I guess I'm talking more about the stop, the moment of stopping and the reason it stopped.
2: I think because we couldn't hold on to it any longer. Yeah. We as the audience needed a break. I don't think it's a break for her. I, I think it's a break for us to let us absorb. You know, because the idea is I, if I throw too much stuff at you, you can't absorb it. Now it no longer has power.
1: Yeah. Well, and it definitely gives you space in the moments afterwards to kind of calm down with her for a minute.
2: Yeah. I it's I don't even think it's it's like her that we're calming down with her. I think it's we're although you know it's subjective. So it's whatever you experience is is what's right. But ultimately, it's to give us a a pause and that pause lets us breathe for a second and that gives us a sort of, you, you, you know, that lets it sink in. It makes it more powerful, I think. Yeah. It's just like loud sound, loud sound, loud sound, loud sound is not really nearly as, impa- is, as, as impactful as quiet, quiet, loud.
0: Yeah. The cool thing about this is how subjective it all is because I took something completely different from that the way the music ended was that she's in this manic state he goes into the bathroom gets her like a xanax or a sleeping pill and the second it hits her mouth it's like modern society or uh modern technology grabbing hold of her and the the medicine is yeah changing her perspective although it literally wouldn't be that fast but that's how i kind of took the music dropping out as it cutting off
2: yeah I, i i agree i wouldn't argue with that at all i think
1: that's a great take on it What's funny is I never perceived the pill at all. I was so locked into her freaking out, like I didn't even see the pill coming. I didn't, I, I didn't even recognize that it occurred until you guys just said it. Thing is,
2: the pill is the cult leader. You, you know, subdues with with drugs, and this is you've left one cult for another. I think the beauty of Sean's stuff is that he's there's a couple levels going on here.
1: With regards to the cult, you had a, a cool kind of a droney thing happening on a couple of the moves into the cult. Yeah, and a couple of the night shots as well. Yeah, a couple of, like a low thing. It was like a low droney thing. And you actually used it also when they... We're at the Colton, they went skinny dipping over the waterfall there for the underwater stuff. It was a very similar type drone, if not the same one. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it felt very similar, and it was interesting because you stuck with it, but it still gave you kind of that underwater feel, not a lot of, not a lot of uh, mids and highs, even though underwater really sounds midy and high. But yeah, the, the stereotypical, I guess, kind of underwater feel. Um, but we stuck with that feel even when the camera popped back up above the water and then dipped back down again. It's not like there was a shift from underwater to above water. We basically stayed underwater even when the camera came up above water, which was cool. Yeah. There's lots of, I mean, you know, that that, that
2: movie afforded lots of creative little things like that that were fun to do. I think that just the jump from from the boat into, into Fawn's Leap which is an actual swimming hole that that's not too far from me that people go to all the time. is is I, You know, I thought that whole shift
1: was super fun. Yeah, it was great. Uh, but I, you know what I was reminded of? Can I play you something? I'm going to play you something right quick. Yeah, sure. In West Texas, the main crop is cotton, and in the off-season when there's no cotton on the fields, it's just a bunch of dunes, um, and it's rows that are miles long, That are about, I don't know, a foot high. And when the wind blows over them, it howls in the most creepy, awful way. And so you're sending me this file when? I'm just going to play it. No, no, but... Would you like it? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so here it is. Uh, This is just the, this is it all together here. And what I did was I did this I did something similar. I chucked it into isotope and I just extracted the howling. yeah. but this drone that I got right here I, 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 I flashed back to it when I heard some of the stuff that you were doing as we moved into the into the commune. One of the techniques that I really like to do is to take field recordings that do have kind of drony elements into them and chuck them into, into RX. Yeah. Um and then do a noise reduction pass where I it searches entirely for tonal and not at all for broadband. Uh-huh. And then flip it to output noise only. I've
2: done it with uh with Waves as well. And then I've, I used to do it with Do you remember Dinner? Yes. Dinner, you used to be able to draw the eq curve. remember you could draw little things on the nodes you could hit super fit and then move those things up and down and i used to pull everything out and then only let particular frequencies through
1: and they got rid of dinner and i'm fucking mad (laughs) (laughs) um i've done something else too where i've done uh you can do the same thing with like uh click removal inside of rx yep and you can just cre- totally create drones that way, too.
2: Yeah. Um, I, have a, I had a dragonfly trapped in between a, a, a screen and a window. So I had this dragonfly that I got to record for, like, hours. Uh, what I did was I took DeClick and DeCrackle and just over, just beat it to death with those and then would listen to the other side, the, you know, the inverse of it and design that into cool creatures flying around. Nice. Yeah, it's good stuff.
1: Cool. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed the flick. Um, all kinds of just subtlety and interesting things going on there. So
2: I'm glad it's like, I'm a, I'm very, very proud of that film. I, that was a good, you know, to do that film, catfish, uh, Simon killer. There was like a 2011 was a great year, 2012. You know, that was a really fun, fun year.
0: what uh, that you want us to promote?
2: No, no. I mean, you know, C a but I, I don't really care.
0: <laughs> I have your uh, sliding whooshes library. Yeah. And uh, I was working on a, a project recently, an animation project that had lots of snowboarding in it. Oh. And those That's sliding whooshes cool. ended up being a lifesaver. They worked perfectly with snowboards.
2: I did a thing for Universal called First Descent, which was like the sort of a documentary about the history of snowboarding. And, and i had i'm a i'm an avid skier snowboarder i mean i i am a huge fan of jake and all the guys at burton they're super sweet guys um they have put me on many snowboards in my career and um none of the footage for the entire movie if you ever watch it it's really funny because it's every single snowboarding shot is completely fake three helicopters in the air when they're shooting everything so it's one of those things that's like we had to do everything uh, over again and and even talking to Sean and, and Terrier and Travis and all the guys who were snowboarding in it they were kind of like wow how'd you get the sound that's like so awesome I didn't know I had a microphone on or anything you're like you didn't guys it's alright <laughs> that's, that's what we're trained to do
0: thanks a lot for joining us Call. thanks Call. okay see ya
1: Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Carl Anderson for jumping on with us today. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at the Tone Benders and go to tonebenders.net to leave a comment. Also check us out at facebook.com slash podcast. We'll see you guys next time.
0: Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at The Tonebenders or email us at DC Timothy or Renee at
2: tonebenders.net.